Uh, well, friends, uh, who is the greatest person who has ever introduced themselves to you? Uh, I'm a pretty boring person, and so I haven't had any uh, you know, great people introduce themselves to me. And so uh, I asked around this week, uh, my children said uh, that it was Colin Buchanan. Uh, Colin Buchanan introduced himself to them uh, at a recent concert. Uh, when I asked my wife, she said uh, it was Bryce Courtney. Anyone know who Bryce Courtney is? Uh, famous Australian author. Uh, he once introduced himself to her. And uh, one of our friends said that the Queen once introduced herself to them. Uh, apparently they wrote a letter to the Queen and uh, she actually wrote back formally uh, introducing herself to them. Uh, now, last week we began a new series on the book of Exodus, and uh, I want to suggest that uh, when we come to today's chapters, which are chapters 3 and 4, uh, what we are looking at is a part of Exodus where God introduces himself, uh, not only to Moses, but through Moses to the people of Israel, who are, uh, as we saw last week, uh, miserable in their slavery in Egypt. And yet here... Uh, In these chapters, you'll notice, sorry, last week, uh, you might have noticed that in in chapters 1 and 2, God was strangely absent for the the most part in those chapters. And yet here, in these chapters, you'll notice that he's mentioned at almost every point as he introduces himself uh, to the person of Moses. Uh, Now, if we pick up where we left off last week, Uh, You might remember that Moses is in exile uh, in uh, a country called Midian. Uh, He's run away from Pharaoh in Egypt, who wants him dead. And in chapter 3, verse 1, it seems as though he has settled uh, in the land of Midian. For you can see there that he's keeping the flock of his father-in-law. He's a shepherd now. Many years have passed, and he's now an old shepherd. But notice in the same verse that he comes to a mountain called Horeb. Uh, Horeb is actually Mount Sinai, uh, which is where God gives uh, his people the Ten Commandments later on in the book of Exodus. But in the Bible, whenever you hear mention of a mountain, uh, it's likely that something significant is is about to take place. And uh, you can see there that something significant does indeed happen. In verse 2, An angel of the Lord appears in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. And when Moses turns around to see what is happening, well, he sees the extraordinary sight uh, of a bush that is on fire but is not consumed by that fire. Uh, Now, because uh, this is such a dramatic point in the book of Exodus, um, I thought I'd bring in my own bush and um, set it on fire today. I brought some some matches, Um, but then uh, I I thought it probably wouldn't do justice to what is going on in in Exodus 3, Uh, because if I set fire to this bush, uh, not only would the bush kind of burn up uh, in a matter of seconds, but uh, I might burn down this whole building as well, and uh, Matt, our church warden, is giving me some uh, glaring looks at the moment. Uh, But you see, the whole point of the burning bush is that it's on fire, but it's not actually consumed, is it? 
In other words, it's a miracle, and the miraculous nature of what is going on here continues because Moses then hears the voice of God speaking to him out of the bush. And you'll notice there that God essentially says two things to Moses. Uh, Did you notice them? Uh, Firstly, he says that he is a God who is holy. In other words, God is not like us. Uh, He is somebody who is uh, set apart and different from all of creation, both in his majesty as well as his purity. Uh, That's why he tells Moses in verse 5 not to come near and to take his sandals off as a sign of reverence. For you cannot approach this holy God in his awesome majesty and his purity as a sinful man and expect to live. But secondly, notice also that God says that he has come down to save his people from slavery. Uh, You might have noticed uh, in our passage that many of the verbs uh, that were used at the end of last week's passage uh, are actually uh, used again in today's passage as well. And so if you just glance over at the end of chapter 2, you'll see there that God sees the people of Israel. He hears their cry for help. He, He knows their suffering. And if you have a look from chapter 3, verse 7 onwards, you'll see that the same verbs are used here. God has seen the affliction of his people. He's heard their cry for help. He knows their suffering. And importantly here, he comes down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. And he comes down in order to bring them up into the promised land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, Now, at this point, I just want to say that uh, I don't think the point of this passage is for us to uh, put ourselves into the the shoes of Moses here, um, or his sandals, uh, or his bare feet. Uh, We are not Moses. Uh, We don't stand uniquely on the cusp of uh, a great turning point in salvation history. And so I don't think this is teaching us that like Moses, we can expect God to speak to us in such miraculous ways, uh, such as through a burning bush. Uh, Many people speak of their burning bush moments, so to speak. Uh, Many claim that they have received some new revelation from God, telling them what to do. But this is not an encouragement to seek our own burning bush moments. But rather... I think we are meant to see here the nature of who God is. For you see, he is a God who is awesome in majesty and purity. And he is transcendent above all things. And yet he is a God who is tender-hearted towards his people. And he comes down to rescue them so that he can bring them up to himself. You see, it's a very different thing to every other religious system in the world, isn't it? You know, all the other religions, uh, they teach you how uh, you need to work your way up to God. Uh, You need to climb the religious ladder, so to speak. Uh, Whether it's the five pillars of Islam, or the eightfold path in Buddhism, or the system of sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church, it's all about how you need to, uh, through your good works, work your way up to God. 
But the true and living God is the one who loves his people so much that he comes down. He reaches down to us so that he can bring us up to himself. Now you see it here in Exodus, but you see it most clearly in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, who came down to die on a cross and was raised to life so that he could take us up to God. And so uh, God has just announced to Moses that he has come down to rescue his people. Uh, you can almost imagine uh, Moses' excitement here, can't you? You can almost imagine him cheering at this point. I mean, how fantastic that God has come down to rescue his people. Until, of course, God says to Moses, you're the one I'm going to send. You're the one I'm sending to do it. And you can see it there in chapter 3, verse 10. In chapter 3, verse 10, God says, Come, I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Uh, now, you can see there that it is at this point that the objections sort of start to flow from the lips of Moses. Uh, Moses gives five objections to what God says. And uh, I want us to go through these objections one by one, uh, but I'm just going to skip over the second objection and, and come back to that uh, later on because I think it's a rather important one for us to look at. Uh, but the first objection that you can see there has to do with Moses' identity. Uh, you can see it in uh, chapter 3, verse 11, in the question that Moses asks God. Uh, Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Uh, in one sense, your, your heart goes out to Moses here, doesn't it? I mean, you can almost hear what he's thinking. I'm just a lowly shepherd uh, who's been working for my father-in-law. Uh, I'm almost 80 years old, as we will find out soon enough. I'm actually in exile because I fled from a previous pharaoh who wanted me dead. God, I'm a nobody, and you're asking me to go and confront the leader of the most powerful nation on earth? Who am I that, I could, that you should ask me to do such a thing? But the way God answers Moses' question here is, is striking, don't you think? He says in verse 12, I will be with you. In one sense, it doesn't appear to be an answer at all, does it? I mean, Moses asks, who am I? God says, I am with you. <laughs> but this is precisely the answer that Moses needs to hear because what God is saying is that his understanding of himself, his very own identity, is to be shaped not by his lack of ability or his, or his lack of significance, but by the God who is now with him. If God is not with him and he's left to his own devices, then there is no hope. But if God is with him, then all is secure. So that's the first objection. Uh, now let's skip over to the third objection, which is the objection of Israel's unbelief. 
uh, Moses says to God in chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, that the Israelites simply won't believe me uh, when I go and tell them that, you know, God has appeared to me. And what does God do? Well, notice that he gives Mo uh, Moses three very powerful signs. Uh, firstly, in uh, chapter 4, verse 3, uh, he gives Moses a wooden staff that turns into a serpent. Uh, serpents represented royalty uh, in, in Egypt. Now, that's why when you have a look at the, the crown of the pharaohs, they always have a cobra uh, sitting, sitting on top there. And so the staff was to be a symbol of God's rule. And uh, we'll see later on that uh, this particular staff gobbles up uh, the, the, the staff of the magicians uh, that Pharaoh uh, uses. Secondly, in verse 6, he gives the sign of a hand that sort of puts on leprosy uh, like a glove and then puts it off just as easily as, as taking off a glove. And finally, in verse 9, he gives the sign of blood. Uh, now, we'll see later on that all these signs are actually signs that confirm God's judgment on, the, on Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. But here, God says to Moses that there will be signs to the people of Israel, his very own people, of their salvation. Uh, so that's the third objection. But Moses isn't done yet because notice that he has a fourth objection, which is that he is not a very good public speaker. Uh, you can see it there in uh, verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of tongue, uh, slow of speech rather, and of tongue. Uh, did Moses have a stutter? Did he get stage fright? Was he not quick on his feet? Um, I suppose we will never know. But listen to what God says in verse 11. He says, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Uh, I think this is very striking because um, you notice that God is saying that not only is he the one who is going to be with Moses' mouth and teach him what to say, but he's also the one who can open blind eyes. That is, he's going to be with Israel so that they can see uh, what Moses is saying. They can, they can see who God is. Well, Moses is fast running out of excuses, isn't he? But notice that he still wants to object to God sending him. And so out of desperation, in verse 13, he says, Oh, my Lord, please send somebody else. You see, it's uh, sheer stubbornness in the end, isn't it? Uh, it's a refusal to do what God has called him to do, which is why God gets so angry in verse 14. But even then, God is patient enough and kind enough to provide his brother Aaron to be a mouthpiece so that he can do the speaking for him. Uh, now, friends, uh, we are not Moses, as I've mentioned, 
And yet here I think the stubbornness of Moses at Mount Sinai uh, is meant to reflect something of the stubbornness of the nation of Israel uh, that we will see later on uh, as they uh, gather around on Mount Sinai as well. And so I wonder whether this stubbornness can be something of a reflection of God's people, uh, people like you and me. I mean, Moses shows a humility in acknowledging his inadequacy and lack of ability, and yet it does seem to be a humility that is mingled with a, with a stubbornness, doesn't it? A stubborn reluctance to serve God, wishing that somebody else will do it. I wonder whether we can identify with Moses here. Uh, Have we often refused to serve God because in our humility we think, well, I'm not good enough. Uh, I don't have the ability to do those things. And yet our humility is masking a stubborn reluctance to serve God because we find it uncomfortable. And yet, how does God answer Moses' objections? Well, he doesn't do it by denying uh, Moses' inability, does he? Nor does he do it by giving Moses a motivational speech so that he has an inflated view of himself, which is what we might expect in our day and age. No, he shows Moses uh, not only his own smallness, but more importantly, just how big and powerful Uh, God is, and God promises to Moses that he will be with him so that he can do the job. Uh, You might have heard of a missionary by the name of Hudson Taylor. Uh, I'm sure many of us have heard that name before. Uh, He was a a missionary to China in the late 19th century uh, who is famous for wearing Chinese clothing and growing a pigtail so that uh, he could be like the Chinese men. Um, uh, so that he might be able to uh, share the gospel with them as one of them. Uh, He was a great one in pioneering gospel work in China. But the story goes that Taylor was once invited uh, back to Australia uh, to a conference in Melbourne where uh, the speaker or the, the service leader at the time introduced him as our illustrious guest. Uh, But the story goes that as Taylor stepped up to the platform, um, he stood there quietly for a moment and he opened his address by saying, Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. I'm a little servant of an illustrious master. Uh, You see, this is what Christian service is about, isn't it? It's about small people knowing a big God who is with them. It's true of Moses, who is transformed by God to be a great servant. Uh, It's true of the Apostle Paul, who describes himself as a fragile jar of clay, but through whom God's powerful gospel is displayed. Uh, It's true of Hudson Taylor. Uh, It's true of many Christians who know their smallness, but are convinced of God's bigness, this God who has promised to be with them. Is that true of you as well and of me? Are we serving God and the gospel 
because we are convinced that despite our smallness and our lack of ability, that this God is a big God and a powerful God, that he has given us the ultimate sign of the cross and he promises to be with us till the end of the age. Uh, Well, we've seen the many objections of Moses, uh, but we're now going to circle back to his second objection, uh, which is not really an objection, but the question, who are you? Uh, God, if I go back to the people of Israel, says Moses, and they ask me for your name, uh, what am I going to tell them? Uh, Your name is a very personal thing, isn't it? For it represents who you are. That's why so many people get upset when they are called by the wrong name. Uh, You know, at this church, I get called Hank uh, very, very often, and it really upsets me. Uh, Not because there's anything wrong with that name, but because it's just not who I am. Uh, If you're wondering who Hank is, he's uh, another minister in our church, and uh, uh, often I get called his name. But here, notice that God seems to give three different names for himself. Uh, Firstly, in chapter 3, verse 14, you can see the name, I am who I am. Uh, Secondly, in the same verse, it is the name, I am. And thirdly, in verse 15, it is the name, Lord, in capital letters. And uh, it can seem a little bit confusing, can't it? Uh, there's, There's three names there. Uh, What's actually going on in this passage? Well, I think the easiest way to understand this is to know that the word Lord in capital letters is actually the personal name of God uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, Just as my name is Huey, uh, God's name is the Lord. It's actually the word Yahweh in uh, the Hebrew language. But in order to avoid misusing God's personal name, Uh, what the Jewish people did was they substituted that word with the word Lord instead so that they would not have to use the name Yahweh in case they they may have uh, misused it. And so wherever you see the word Lord in capital letters, just remember that it's actually the word Yahweh. However, Yahweh in the Hebrew language is just a shortened form of the phrase, I am who I am. It's a bit like uh, DK. Um, We call him DK, but uh, we call him that because it's actually short for David Kim uh, or YJ. Is YJ here today? Oh, there's YJ. We call her YJ, but it's actually short for uh, Yangji. The name Lord is just a shortened form for I am who I am. But what does this name tell us? about who God really is? Well, firstly, it tells you that God's identity is not defined by anything outside of himself. God's identity is not defined by anything outside of himself. Uh, It's not true with us, is it? I mean, if I asked you to complete the sentence, I am dot, 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 uh, how would you complete that sentence, do you think? Uh, I might say, I am a husband to Haywon, 
or I am a father to Levi, or I am a pastor of church at nine, or I am a lover of the Arsenal Football Club. But uh, whatever it is, my identity is dependent on other people or other things. But not so with God. For God is not defined by anything outside of himself. And so only God can tell us who God is, you see, and what he is like. And that's why it's so dangerous to say things like, you know, I like to think of God as dot, dot, dot. Have you ever heard people say those words? I mean, that will only tell you what you like to think of God as. (laughs) in your own imaginations. You won't actually tell me anything about the true and living God who is there. In fact, the people of Israel have a great I like to think of God as moment in Exodus. Can anyone uh, think or remember what that incident might be? Well, it's the incident of the golden calf, isn't it? Later on, as they imagine for themselves the God who has rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. You see, whenever you begin to think, I like to think of God as, you end up creating your own God and worshipping your own idol. However, I want you to see that the name I am who I am can also refer to the future And so uh, in your Bibles, you probably have a little footnote next to the phrase, I am who I am, in verse 14. Uh, Can you see that little footnote in your Bibles? Uh, If you actually trace down that footnote to the bottom of the page, uh, it will tell you that it can also mean, I will be what I will be. In other words, what God is saying here is that he will make himself known to his people but he will make himself known to his people by what he is about to do next. And what will he do? Well, as we will see, God is about to embark on a great act of salvation, an extraordinary work of salvation for his people of Israel. In chapter 3, verse 17, he says that he will, in the future, bring Israel out of slavery in Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. In verse 19, he says he will defeat the king of Egypt by striking down Egypt with terrible plagues. And in verse 22, he will enable the people of Israel to plunder the Egyptians and to walk out in victory. Did you notice that it was the women doing the plundering here? God's victory is going to be so great that the women are the ones who are going to plunder the Egyptians. For it won't be in their strength, but in the strength of their great God. In short, God is saying, you will know me by my great act of salvation. And so watch this space. Well, the people of Israel did watch this space. They came to know God as their mighty saviour, who rescues them out of their miserable slavery in Egypt. But it wasn't just in Egypt. God does it again and again and again. Uh, Many hundreds of years later, they came to know God as their saviour once again 
as he rescued them out of their miserable slavery in Babylon. And many hundreds of years after this, God finally, decisively, makes himself known in all his glory by sending his very own son into this world to be the saviour of the world. In John's Gospel, we are told that Jesus came down in the flesh to make God known to his people. In chapter 1, verse 18 of John, it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. But later in John's Gospel, we also see the astonishing fact that Jesus is not just another messenger like Moses, who has come to reveal uh, God to his people, but he himself is the great I Am. You know Jesus, and you know God himself, is what he's saying. I am the light of the world, he says. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the vine. I am who I am, says Jesus. And in John chapter 18, verse 6, John chapter 18, verse 6, we see an extraordinary incident where the soldiers who try to arrest Jesus draw back from him and end up falling on the ground before him precisely at the moment when Jesus says to them, I am. John 18, verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, the word he is not actually there, it's simply I am, well, they drew back and fell to the ground. And yet, friends, it is really at our great salvation event, our salvation event at the cross, that we come to know who God really is, isn't it? For there God is revealed in all his glory, what do we know of God at the cross? Well, we know him to be a God who is so holy and righteous that he simply cannot sweep your sins and my sins under the carpet. He is a God who judges sin. And yet he is also the loving and gracious and generous God who in dying in our place frees us from our miserable slavery to sin and the fear of death, and the power of the evil one. What an extraordinary God we serve, friends. What an extraordinary God we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how extraordinary it is that this one came down into this world because he wanted to be known by his people. It's not that he needs to be known by us. You know, it's not like Valentine's Day where lots of people want to be known by their lovers in a desperate kind of, you know, you complete me kind of way. No, Jesus doesn't need to know us in that kind of way. I am who I am, he says. And yet the extraordinary thing is that this Jesus wants to be known by his people. He wants to be known by you. 
and he wants to be known by me. You know, we should be floored by this, don't you think? It should have us reaching for our Bibles, hungering to know God more and more in our lives. But uh, I don't know about you, but um, I must confess that um, there are many times in my life where I fail to be awed by God in the Bible. Is that your experience as well? Uh, There are so many times when things don't surprise me about God in the Bible anymore. I mean, it's not because I somehow know everything about God. Far from it. But perhaps it's because so often I come to God's Word thinking, well, I like to think of God as... And so I fail to see the God who is really there. I fail to learn new things about him that surprises me and captivates me. I like to think of God as. Friends, can you see from Exodus that we have a God who wants to be known by his people? How extraordinary it is that this God who created the universe should see the misery of our sins and should come down into this world to save nobodies like you and me, and that after having risen again as the Lord of this world, that he sends his Spirit to help us because he wants to be known to his people. What greater thing is there than knowing him in our lives? Is is your life about knowing him? knowing him better in your life. What needs to change for you and I to know him better? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that unlike the idols who are blind and deaf and dumb, you are a God who sees and hears and speaks to us with great power. And Father, we thank you that you have seen the misery of our sin and that you have heard our cries to you and that you have sent your Son to come down to save us and to reveal yourself to us. And Father, we thank you that you are a God who wants to be known by your people. Forgive us for the times when we have neglected to know you in your word. Help us to put aside the gods and the idols that we imagine for ourselves and help us by your spirit to know you more and more through your word, your living word, the Bible. And please, Father, transform us to be your people who are confident not in ourselves, who don't place our confidence in our own abilities, but in the work that you are doing in this world in calling people to salvation through your Son. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.